Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, it's the best of cult stories, or cult-ish stories. I say that because I'm a fan of two other podcasts, one called The Turning and another called Indoctrination, both of which explore the ways that cult-ish dynamics can show up in groups that might not match all of the criteria we're used to associating with cults. Sometimes a dynamic between two or more people will check off only one or two of the typical signs of being a cult. 
but could check off more boxes over time. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Lulu and Scott Whitney. But before that, a story from Joy Keller, who you can find at joykeller3 on Instagram. Joy's story, recorded in 2014, is about Rama, whose heyday was the 80s and 90s, and whose cult should not be confused with that of Ram Tha, the subject of another infamous risk story. And Ram Tha's heyday was 35,000 years ago, according to his cult. So, to bring us a little more up to date, here's Joy Keller now with a story we call Rama Lama Ding Dong. So when I was 21 years old, I moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Los Angeles, California. And my very first day there was the day of the Rodney King riots. I loved it. I thought it was great. It was perfect because that's how I felt on the inside. All the chaos and all the entropy just perfectly symbolized what was going on inside me. And I'd found my Mecca. I'd spent the previous year working as a stripper at Temptations Adult Entertainment in Atlanta, which was the titty bar capital of the world at the time. (laughs) And a lame attempt to get myself back into college, which was the biggest goal of my life. I moved out of the house when I was 17, a, a very poor family. And I just felt that college would be my ticket out of poverty, and it meant the world to me. I wanted to make something of myself, and I wanted to prove to my parents that I could do it. So I put myself through two years of college, and it was hard, and I thought that stripping would make it easier, but it's not easy to work from 8 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning, and then get up five hours later and talk about comparative literature. So it didn't work out. After a year of stripping, I realized if I continued pole dancing to Nirvana songs, I was probably going to be a co-core by the time I was 25. And I just needed a change. And so that's why I moved to L.A. (laughs) I lived on a 28-foot sailboat with a friend of mine from high school. And everything was handy dandy. It was fine for a month or two. Walking around barefoot, wearing my Daisy Dukes and my Jägermeister t-shirt. But you could only get so tan. And I'd run out of money. And I was used to having a stash of cash on hand. And I was so broke. Back then, they used to send sample cereal boxes through the mail. And I was stealing those from my neighbors. I was starving. So I decided to get a job. And I got the paper out. And I read it. We did that too back then. And there's a classified ad. The ad was, get paid to meditate. I thought, that's fabulous. Get paid to meditate? There can't be any strings involved in that, right? And, it, and it's way better than popping your coochie. <laughs> so I called and I met this woman named Anne at Jerry's Famous Deli in Marina Del Rey. And over a hot bowl of matzo ball soup, she didn't tell me how I was going to make money meditating. But she did tell me about this man, this teacher, whom she had been studying with named Rama otherwise known as Frederick Lenz from San Diego, California. This man taught a special blend of American Zen Buddhism and computer programming. (laughs) 
And he was the only enlightened Westerner in the world. And if you studied with him, you could become enlightened too in this lifetime. You know, I didn't know what to think about that. I was, I'd grown up Southern Baptist and left all that behind, but she gave me a $100 bill and told me that she did that for anyone who was interested in working with Rama. And she also invited me to this black tie gala affair at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. I'm not gonna say no to that. So I, I took the $100, I bought some groceries and a party dress. Two days later, Anne um, picked me up in her Datsun 280Z and off we go. <laughs> and I was mesmerized, I mean, I'm a country girl. Seeing this uh, Four Seasons Hotel, it was, the Grammys were going on, there were parties everywhere. I was starstruck. On the way in, I had to sign a waiver. There are two Tibetan dragons at the top, and I, I had to verify that I was between the ages of 18 and 29, and that I wouldn't sue Rama, Frederick Lenz, or Advanced Systems, Inc. You'd think that'd be a red flag, but everyone else was doing it, so why not? There were about um, 200 people there. About 50 of them were Rama's students, and they were all either computer programmers, computer analysts, or systems architect. And they were very nice and very smart um, and just had their shit together. And all the rest of us were between the ages of 18 and 29 <laughs> apprentices. And we were all vying for spaces in Rama's community. I didn't know what anything meant. I just knew that I loved the tropical fruit topiaries. There was an amazing gourmet spread and I had a raging eating disorder at the time. I was in heaven. <laughs> and everyone was so nice. So we're about midway through the meal when this synthesized rock music starts to play and everyone just stops mid-sentence and all eyes are at the back of the room. And in comes Rama. He floats from the corner of the ballroom and he's this tall, lanky man with this crazy, curly, Kenny G hair and um, he just talked. He talked about life. He had this nasally voice, and he talked about current events, and he was funny, and he was witty, and he was charming, and he just held us all in the palms of his hands. And then he asked us to meditate with him. So I closed my eyes and pretended to know what I was doing, and within about three minutes, I started feeling this warm sensation in my belly and then it started to spread throughout my entire body. My cells were spinning and I, I was buzzing and I felt like I was going to actually float off my chair. So I opened my eyes and I was assaulted with this tangible golden light. It was like a sun soup. It actually felt like you could just reach out and grab a handful of it. And then I noticed, although I was at the back of the ballroom, I had a direct line of vision to Rama, and he was levitating about a foot off the ground. And I looked around me, and everyone else was either, they had their eyes closed, or they didn't see what I was seeing, or they didn't notice it, or it was just something that was a Rama thing that he did. Um, I don't know, maybe I was hypnotized, could have been LSD, but I had done LSD, and this did not seem like LSD to me. <laughs> Party tricks aside, I felt amazing. I, my malaise had melted, my depression had disappeared. I actually gave a shit about life for a change. I felt like I could be someone. I felt like 
I was no longer lost, that I had found some place to be. Now, whatever this person, whatever these people had to offer, I wanted a part of it because I felt like a new person. So I kept going back to these affairs. They happened about once or twice a month at the Four Seasons. Anne sponsored me. I also started helping with the recruiting. And on one such occasion, I saw Rama in an unguarded moment. And I just walked right up to him, held up my hand, and said, Hi, I'm Joy. He paused, but it wasn't a pregnant pause. He was just taking me in. He was looking at me. And he grabbed my hand and said, Hello. And we talked for about three to five minutes, just about my aspirations. I had wanted to be a model, and I would also wanted to go into magazines, which I did later on in life. We talked about our past lives. We both agreed that it didn't really matter all that much what your past lives were, and ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I felt funny and smart, and he made me feel pretty. It was a magical moment. And then I turned around, and Anne was standing there like a mad schoolmarm. She took me aside, and she scolded me. She said, no one ever touches Rama. You just can't touch him, I guess because you would infect him with your humanity. But he had touched me. He had taken my hand. We had a thing going, a repartee. But then she shifted. And she said, Rama only connects physically with women who have a particular type of karma. And you must have that karma, Joy. You are a chosen one. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm a chosen one. I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that it had to mean that he liked me. Rama liked me. <laughs> and if someone this important liked me, I had to take the next step. And I did. And the program worked like this. If you wanted to study with Rama, you had to work with computers. It was highly encouraged that you work with computers. <laughs> Because it makes total sense, really, did at the time. If you're a computer programmer, especially in the early 90s, you made a lot of money. The more money you make, the more freedom you have to pursue your spirituality. And also um, pay Rama a huge sum of money. <laughs> Beginning, you would pay him $1,000 a month, minimum. But in exchange, you got to sit with him and get on the short path to enlightenment in this lifetime. <laughs> and as you were programming, you could live as a monk in the world. Like computer programming helped you get into this meditative zone, like this sausage casing of nirvana. And that meant that even if you did have to go into the office, you would be like, your languages, and you're just in your thing. And no one, you didn't have to interact with anyone. You could just be in your Rama zone. You weren't supposed to have friends out of the community, and you were never supposed to talk to your family. But that was okay with me. This was going to be my new family. So I enrolled in Computer Learning Center in downtown LA, which was the last thing that my high school counselor would have recommended for me. I'm a writer, I'm an editor, I'm a performer, I'm an artist. But I, I had to do this. I had to do this because I was a chosen one. <laughs> Stripping didn't work out, so here we go. <laughs> But after a month, I, I think I barely got through the binary system, and I, I lost it. I hated computer programming so much. I hated it. And my body was actually, I was sick. My kidney was failing. I was miserable. You know, I'd moved in with two of the other 
ladies at the time who were in the community, and I saw how great their lives were, and I saw how much they loved Rama, and Rama was God. If the sunset was beautiful, it was because of Rama. If you didn't get a parking ticket, it was because of Rama. Rama was God. Rama was everything. And their lives were steady. There were no ups. There were no downs. They had lots of money. Everything was great. That wasn't happening for me, and I couldn't understand why. And I had to think that it was because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't pretty enough to already be on his yachts, traveling around the world with him, so fuck it. So I just packed everything in my car one morning, and I left. And I lived out of my car. Over the years, I um, you know, eventually finished college. But I always wondered about Rama, and I always wondered what would happen if I'd stayed. I did some research, and I learned some things. I learned that one of the people in the community had committed suicide. I learned that a lot of women had come forth with allegations of sexual abuse. I learned that this community was officially defined as a cult. <laughs> and I learned that he had an $18 million estate. Even though some of these things were very dubious, I still felt like I'd fucked up because I couldn't program a goddamn computer, I wouldn't be enlightened. <laughs> and then, <laughs> one day in April 1998, Rama put on a suit and tie, and he put his dog's collar around his neck. He loved his dogs, his Scotty dogs. They were everything to him. And he overdosed on phenobarbital, and he jumped off a dock at his private lake. That's where they found him. And my first thought was, holy shit, like, what are these people going to do now? Because he was their world. How are they going to be able to function? And I, I was concerned about them. And then my second thought was, wow. If I'd stayed in this cult, what could have transpired? Because there was a female follower with him that night. He was also drugged up. Could that have been me as a potential chosen one? Could we have all got involved in some sort of crazy phenobarbital suicide pact? And that's when I had this wash of gratitude and I realized that, yeah, my self-esteem was abysmally low, lower than the bar needed to stay in a cult that preyed on low self-esteem. <laughs> but my intuition was also working for me. That's why my body was breaking down. So the combination of my intuition and my low self-esteem, it made a good pair and it enabled me to get out of a situation that could have set my life on a totally different trajectory. And I instead had found the freedom and the happiness in eventual place in life that I am now. Thank you. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We're back. It's a Saturday morning and I'm working in a housing project, knocking on doors. I'm in this hallway with uh, brown industrial carpeting. The sounds of daytime TV are spilling out from the apartments along with the smell of cheap soap. And I turn to the door on my right. It's my turn to knock. I knock on this hollow cord door and I can hear the sound reverberate in the apartment. And as usual, I'm praying metaphorically that the person won't come to the door. The door opens up and the first thing that I notice is that the apartment is pitch black. And as my eyes adjust, I see the man that I would come to know as Paul. His face looked like he hadn't aged at all, and he had aged horribly at the same time. It was round and kindly and cherubic, but it was also pale and pockmarked and weathered. His hair was just a tangled mess, like he had had bedhead for a decade. And I noticed that his fingers wrapped around the door jamb were just stained yellow with nicotine stains. Then I noticed this tangle of burned flesh at his wrist. And it disappeared under the sleeve of his long john shirt. And then it reappeared right at the base of his throat and wrapped around the back of his neck up across his head. Something horrible had happened to this man. And I was kind of brought back to the moment when he said, in this really kind way, hi, what can I do for you this morning? And I launched into the presentation that I'd done a million times. Hi, my name is Scott. I know you weren't expecting me. I won't take up much of your time. And then I'd get into some kind of existential theme that I could sort of get behind. And I asked him, do you think it's reasonable to believe in the face of all the injustice that we see in the world today, that there is some kind of God that exists and is interested in us? And I really didn't have an answer to that question at this point, at least one that satisfied me. But fortunately, not too many people were interested in hearing my answer, so it worked out. But Paul was. He said, yeah, I have no doubt that God exists. And I'm equally sure that he has no interest in me. I had been one of Jehovah's Witnesses almost my entire life. And I had always really struggled with the structure, with the regimen of that lifestyle. I hated going to people's doors like this and telling them things they didn't want to hear when they didn't want to hear them. 
I hated having to explain to my co-workers that I didn't celebrate Christmas because originally it was a holiday that uh, honored the Roman god Saturnalia. When inside I'm thinking, who gives a shit? There's a lot of good reasons not to celebrate Christmas. That isn't one. I just struggled with the whole structure of the lifestyle. But on the flip side, I totally bought the belief system. It made sense to me. It provided satisfying answers to a lot of the big questions, whether or not God existed. And if so, what was my responsibility in the face of that? Why is the world so fucked up and is it going to get better? These all had satisfying answers and fundamentally it felt true. It felt like I had truth. And if I had truth, then suddenly I didn't have any choices to make. What I wanted didn't matter. That was irrelevant. All that mattered was truth. But when I hit 30, the old story started to break down and I could feel that I just didn't have the conviction that I once did. And I had this nagging doubt in the back of my head that if this wasn't truth, if this wasn't truth, I'm as obligated to get out as I had been to stay. But I also had to consider the implications because if I walk away from this faith, I am entirely losing my community friends, family, literally will pass me on the street as though I'm a ghost. So I need to be pretty damn sure. There's really no taking a break either to sort this stuff out. If I stopped going to meetings or stopped going out in field service that is knocking on people's doors, I'm going to hear about it out of concern. My friends are, are going to pay attention because they're concerned. And attention is the last thing that I wanted when I'm trying to sort this stuff out. So I decided to try to work it out under the radar and just go through the motions. And that meant continuing to go out in field service. Knocking on people's door on a Saturday morning is weird, even if you're not experiencing a crisis of faith. You're there wearing a tie, you got a book bag and a Bible, trying not to feel like a salesman, and nobody wants you there. People would slam the door in my face pretty regularly. One guy came to the door cleaning his gun in some kind of gesture. What you really wanted were return visits. That's when you had already called on somebody cold and they agreed to let you come back. So you got a better chance of seeing somebody with a friendly face. They may not answer, but the other benefit is that you get to drive out to their place on a Saturday morning and eat up some time when you would normally be knocking on doors of people that don't want to talk to you. So RVs are the place to be. I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend, we couldn't have been older than 12. I had a friend that announced in a car group when we were out in field service that he had a return visit. This guy, he really had to get back uh, and, and talk to. So because this is just more productive than everything else we could be doing, we drove the 45 minutes out to the return visit. And then we just start driving up and down these suburban streets because he can't remember the address. And we're just hunting for this house for almost an hour until he finally gets really excited and points and says, that's it, that's the house. I totally remember. So we pull over, he and I jump out, we run up to the door. And just as he's about to knock on the door, he turns to me and admits, I have no idea who lives here. I'm totally faking this. So we just sort of pantomime knocking on the door for the sake of the people in the car and then run back. But you know, it, it ate up two and a half hours. And if I'm honest, things really hadn't changed a lot for me at 30. In the face of this period of deep crisis of faith, I had 
encountered this man, Paul, that seemed really interested in what we had to say and, and what we were talking to people about. At the end of our chat, I asked him, as I always did, if it would be all right if we came back, if we set up a return visit, and now would be the time for Paul to say, no, I appreciate you stopping by. It was great talking to you, but I'm all set. But Paul didn't say that. He said, yeah, that'd be great. Look forward to seeing you next week. So the next Saturday, I went back to Paul's, and miraculously, he answered the door again. We picked up the conversation right where we left off, and it was in that conversation that Paul told me how he got those burns. He had suffered from mental illness almost his entire life. And when he was much younger, that manifested itself in this deep and real sense that he was evil. When he reached his late teens and early 20s, he started to hear this internal voice, and it identified as Christ. And that voice said to him, Paul, you're beyond redemption. It would be better if you didn't exist. You are an enemy of mine. In his mid-twenties, he really started to take on what that voice was saying. He said, one night I had just had it. I just felt like I was drowning in these voices and I decided to do something about it. So I climbed a utility pole by my house and I reached out and I grabbed a hold of the high tension wires. And the last thing that I remembered was just an explosion of white light. The next morning, Paul woke up in the emergency room. He'd survived, but of course now he was horrifically disfigured. And as he laid in that ER bed in the days after, the voice came back to him and it said, you survived, but don't think that anything has changed. You're still beyond redemption. And after he left the hospital, Paul became a recluse, and one Saturday morning, I knocked on his door. So as I kept going back to Paul's and we kept having these conversations, I was really wrestling with what to do because he seemed to really be enjoying the message that I was sharing with him. But it was a message that I really didn't value anymore. He seemed to derive hope and comfort from the thoughts that had sustained me for so long, but to me, they just seem vapid and hollow now. And then I thought, who am I to impose my crisis of faith on this guy who seems to really be responding to it? My doubts are just a voice that I'm hearing. It really has no place in this conversation with this man. So... Instead, I told him what I knew I could, what had worked for me for so long. He would tell me, Scott, I'm telling you that I'm so confident that I'm doomed, that I'm just waiting out my days. And I would tell him, that's really not what the Bible says. There's no such thing as I understood it between being damned for all time and, and saved for all time doesn't work like that. We're each free moral agents making decisions in the moment. And if you want to choose differently, if you come to understand that God expects something different of you than what you've been doing, you get to do it right now. The past is the past. And again, Paul, that just resonated for him. But each time I went back as the weeks and months went on, Paul seemed to respond less and less to that message. As much as I tried to reinforce that his fate had not been written for him, 
he constantly had objections, whether it be the voice that he heard, his own feeling of self-worth, and he started to pull back from our conversations to some extent. Simultaneously, my doubts were not going away. And I stopped using the literature that we would use. I started just relying, and even this rarely, on some of the Bible verses that were kind of existential and had given me pause for reflect over the years. But even that was tough. It, it was tough to hear my own words. Things were falling apart. One Saturday morning, I went to Paul's apartment in field service, and I saw his car parked in the parking lot. When I went in the hallway, I heard his TV playing in his apartment. I knocked on his door and pulled an answer. I knocked again, and I could hear him moving around inside, but he didn't want to answer the door. So I went back the next Saturday morning, and the same thing happened. The Saturday after that, I decided to give it one more try. So I went and met with the group that was going to be going out in field service before I went to go visit Paul. And when I walked into the building, a good friend of mine came up and she seemed really concerned. And she leaned in and whispered to me and said, there's a message for you on the machine that I think you should hear. So I went into the back room and hit play. The answering machine started to play Paul's voice. And he said, this message is for Scott. This is Paul. Scott, everything you've been telling me over almost the past year, the entire message that you've been sharing with me has left me more fucked up than I have ever been. I feel so turned around and confused. I, I don't know which way is up. I feel despondent. I can only assume that that was your intention. And so congratulations, but please never, never stop here again. And I remember as that message played out, feeling like my feet were just anchored in concrete. I was leaning forward towards the machine and it just felt like I could lean forward and touch my nose to the ground without falling over. And I remember thinking, he's mentally ill. This isn't about what I was telling him. This is not about me. I hadn't caused him any harm. And then I wished that I could be so sure. And that was the last time that I ever heard from Paul. That was the last time I ever went to anybody else's door. And it was the last time that I ever felt like I had any kind of responsibility to a God that I couldn't understand. In 1973, I was 10 years old, and I lived in a small town outside of Pittsburgh with my mother and my father. Our household was not a harmonious place. My mother was nasty and ill-tempered, and she did not want to be a parent. My baby teeth, before they had a chance to fall out on their own, actually decayed and turned black and then fell out. Childcare was not top of her list of priorities. Sometimes she would stop talking to me for a day or two. And I'm talking about when I was a little kid, six or seven years old. She just 
ignored me for the day. I went into a panic trying to figure out why are you ignoring me? What's wrong? Why are you mad at me? And she just wouldn't talk to me. And then the next day, everything would be fine. She tortured me about my weight. She told me I was as big as a house and that no boy would ever like me. She was just an awful person. Something that happened every summer was the people would come up to our house because we had a front porch and the neighbors would come up to hang out and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and gossip. And during this particular summer of 1973, one of our neighbors, Aunt Harriet, started bringing her 19-year-old son with her. Bobby was his name. My mother explained to me that apparently he and his friends had been drinking or smoking pot or taking LSD and they'd gotten into a car accident. During this accident, my mother explained to me, Bobby's brain shook around inside of his skull, and now he was funny, as she put it. I later learned that he had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and now he needed to be watched all the time. So he moved back home, and every evening in the summertime, when Aunt Harriet came, she brought Bobby with her. I didn't like Bobby. He was really scary to me. He was about 5'9", 5'10", kind of husky because he played football in high school. And he had this sort of wild-eyed stare and this weird, creepy laugh. And he always laughed at the wrong moment. And so I was afraid of him. And I didn't want to be there when he was there. I wanted to go in the backyard and play. But my mother said, no, you have to be here because we don't want Aunt Harriet to feel badly. So when Aunt Harriet and Bobby there, I hung out on the front porch. And after a couple of visits, my mother and Aunt Harriet shooed us away because, you know, I realized that Bobby and I were kind of babysitting each other. Aunt Harriet was now strapped with this adult son who couldn't be left alone. And my mother was strapped with this 10-year-old daughter who she just didn't want ever. So, you know, we were babysitting each other in another part of the house or in the backyard. You might think that a 10-year-old and a 19-year-old schizophrenic wouldn't have anything to talk about, but... You'd be wrong. As it happens, one of the first things Bobby ever said to me was, have you heard the good news? And I thought, nah, I don't know, the, the ice cream man is here? No, the good news was apparently that Jesus had died for my sins. And I was a little bewildered, but I knew who Jesus was. I heard about him in Sunday school. Um, he was that hippie guy with the long hair and the beard, sometimes worked with a lamb. He loved everybody. This wasn't the Jesus or the God that Bobby wanted to tell me about. See, in addition to the good news that Jesus died for my sins, there was some bad news, and that was I was going to hell. See, um, in order to not go to hell, I had to not just believe in God, not just believe in Jesus, but I had to have accepted him into my heart as my personal savior. And over the course of the next three months, Bobby proceeded to tell me everything a nervous 10-year-old would never want to know about the world ending. And it went a little something like this. In the next few days, in fact, any minute now, you're going to look around either at the playground or walking on your street, and people will start to be floating up into heaven. And that's going to be something called the rapture. And that's where God collects all of his God-fearing people and brings them to heaven to protect them from what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen next is called the tribulation. And because you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart, you are going to be one of those people who've been left behind. Now, you're not totally screwed. 
you have the next 12 years to make amends to God. And during this 12-year period called the Tribulation, a man will come into power and rule the whole world. And this man will be very handsome, and he will preach a message of peace, and everybody will love him. But don't be fooled, because he's actually the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will come into power, and one of the rules he will make is that in order to buy or sell anything, including food and shelter, you will have to get a tattoo on your right hand or on your forehead. And we'll call this the mark of the beast because in addition to being called the Antichrist, he also has the friendly name, the beast. So Bobby explains to me that I will be forced to take the mark of the beast as a barcode tattooed on my right hand or my forehead, which is all well and good. But then Bobby explains to me that if I do take the barcode, God will immediately cast me into a lake of fire. If I don't take the barcode, I will be executed by the state. So I am damned if I do and damned if I don't. I am listening to this wrapped in attention. It may sound unbelievable to you now, but to a 10-year-old kid, this is like the worst scary story ever. And he's peppering the story with anecdotes about things that are happening in the real world that indicate that the end of the world is actually coming. For instance, 1973 is when Roe v. Wade becomes a law and women are allowed to abort their babies. And this is horrifying to Bobby. And also our vice president resigns from office in 1973. And there's a war in the Middle East because Egypt and Syria have invaded Israel. The other thing is that the IRA the Irish Republican Army is blowing up train stations in Europe. And he's using these real world examples, which I didn't really understand, to absolutely horrify me and make me think that he's got proof that all of this is actually going to happen. And again, I'm sucking this all up and I'm believing it. And I know that the Jesus that I learned about in Bible school is totally implausible to me. This hippie guy who loves everybody just doesn't make any sense to me. This imperious, unforgiving, ill-tempered God makes complete sense to me because I'm living with an imperious, ill-tempered, unforgiving mother. So I'm having anxiety attacks. I can't sleep at night. I start to bite my nails. And finally, I go to my mother. I say to her, I'm scared, you know, I'm afraid the rapture's gonna come and I'm not gonna go to heaven. And she totally brushes me off and says, well, then you'd better behave. So this continues. And during one of our chats, Bobby sort of lowers his voice conspiratorially and says to me, you know, I have to tell you something. Your mother's not buying any of this, and she's not accepting Jesus, and so she's going to go to hell. And I have two simultaneous thoughts when he says this to me. First is that I don't think a grown-up should be telling me that my mother's going to hell. And the second reaction is, gigglingly, oh my God, she's going to go to hell. Because I'm at the age where I'm starting to hate my mother. In addition to knowing that she's in charge, She's mom, she's in charge, she's in charge of everything. I'm starting to hate her too. And I have a little moment of glee knowing that she's going to hell. So I go to her with that. I tell her again, you know, I'm getting really scared. The rapture is coming. And Bobby says, you're going to hell. And my mother stops in her tracks. Suddenly, because it's about her, she gets so angry. I've never seen my mother 
this angry at someone who wasn't me. And her face turns red and she just sort of sends me to the backyard. Go to the backyard. And then there's this lull. A couple of weeks go by and suddenly I realize Aunt Harriet and Bobby aren't coming up to our house anymore. And suddenly there's no more talk of God and there's no more talk of the rapture and there's no more talk of the tribulation. And they're sort of just cut out of our lives. And life starts to begin to go back to our version of normal. But I'm I'm still terrified. I'm still looking out the window and hanging out at the playground waiting for people to be sucked up into heaven and terrified that I'm going to go to hell. So one night at the end of the summer, in my little bedroom, in my little twin bed, I accept Jesus into my heart as my personal Savior because going to hell was one thing. But going to hell with my mother was a risk I was not willing to take. This is Risk. This is Stony behind me now. And we just heard from Lulu with a story called Left Behind that she shared on the podcast in October of 2013. Before that was Scott Whitney with a story called Revelations that he first shared on the podcast in February of 2014. And if you've got a story about cults or cultish behavior, pitch it to us. Maybe you can be on the next episode of this series. Everything you need to know about how to pitch us your story is at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.